0: Sports Entrepreneurs Podcast. I'm your host, Marcus Lure, and I'm excited to cross over to Palm Beach Gardens, Florida today to catch up with Chris Linchinski. Welcome to the podcast, Chris. Thank you, Marcus. Appreciate the invitation and the opportunity to reconnect. Absolutely. Yeah, it's been a long time since we've met physically. But as I said, being in the same industry for many decades, you know, we've kind of bumped into each other a few times here and there. Yes, absolutely. So let me just sort of give a quick intro to yourself and then we get into your fun stories of your career and, of course, things which you're doing now. And so, you know, in the short summary, I would say, Chris, you've been involved really very heavily in the world of motorsports and we're going to, you know, dive deep into it with uh, various ventures and, of course, your own businesses. At one point in time, you are currently still deeply involved in the world of sports as the CEO. Of the winning streak sports, and we'll get to that later. But you also had you know various roles with MP Silver as in a senior advisor to the board. And had a really a good look at many different parts of the industry. So we're gonna take a good look at all that, and on the back of it, I'm pretty certain we'll learn a whole bunch of things about the American automobile or or motorsports industry, um, because yeah, that's clearly your forte here. And and I'd love you to when you when we're talking about it, sometimes keep in mind that we have an international audience, so you might have to explain a little bit. The nuances and the different acronyms which exist there, which uh, maybe outside the U.S. not everyone would recognize, uh, who is sure. more familiar with it. So, uh, and as we always do, let's let's get started right when it all uh, where you where you started your career, and you know from what I can see, you you came out of Sarah Cruz University, and then you landed in the East Events Company, which at that time was affiliated to the Atlanta Olympics. So we are in the sort of 1993-94 here leading up to 96. Uh, Tell us a bit about it, how that all started and uh, what you were doing there.
1: Well, uh, you have a great memory and well done on your due diligence. I had the good fortune, uh, as you said, coming out uh, of college to know that I wanted to work in something that was going to be sport or entertainment related. And certainly, Marcus, at that time, the industry that we now know today that is replete with academic degrees and masters and doctorates in sports and sports entertainment did not exist. And the way to move that needle at that time was to get on the phone, write letters, and just hustle up opportunities to meet people. And along the lines, I had the good fortune of meeting uh, the founder of Eastern Events, which was a separate division of United Media. And at that time, United Media was one of the largest sports and entertainment licensors uh snoopy garfield movies theater shows of all kinds including nfl halftime shows if you can believe it and they had just been awarded the contract for the 1996 atlanta centennial olympic games through atlanta centennial olympic properties which was the entertainment marketing and sales arm of uh acog right which is the acronym for the organizing committee yep And the Easton Events Company, being effectively a sub-brand of United Media, had won the event management contract uh, for the games. And, of course, that was a new category as a licensee. And I always gave credit to Mr. Payne and a handful of the others, uh, Ginger Watkins, for example – Uh, from ACOG that they wanted professional management of not just, obviously, the games. The games were effectively in a handbook, how to run the games and what was going to be needed for the games. But this was now how we were going to address the standards and practices of management of rights and marketing of rights. And in my case, uh, how to make sure that there was no uh, essentially guerrilla marketing of the various brands that were going to be associated in Atlanta Looking back on it now, um, it was clear that why Atlanta was going to be a very different Olympics because in the U.S. we are privately financed. Our category with how the brand activate and how, more importantly, the brands who did not choose to be officially sponsored uh, not rub away some of the, the luster of the rings or the marks of Atlanta – And my job at that time uh, as the Olympic marketing and sponsorship director for Eastern Events was to integrate with the licensing team, the marketing teams, and work on activation strategies. I think it taught me a tremendous amount about where I thought the business was going to head. And it actually set a trajectory for me in one case, uh, specifically with uh, McDonald's, because the then CEO, Ed Renzi, uh, would become a lifelong friend and a mentor and later be on the board of my own company. But Mr. Renzi also taught me how to to think about the scaling of McDonald's investments in sports, as well as why they were involved in Atlanta in the first place.
0: But right. Wow. That sounds like a great way to start a career, um, you know, diving straight into the deep end there of things. Um, the part which sort of confused me but because it says the official event management company. When I hear event management, I'm thinking the operational side, right, running the event. But it was actually yeah. – it sounds more like it was more the commercial side they were managing. So, uh, you know, it just a Correct. bit of a misnomer or, or... – I think
1: it was such a new category – Relative to being a licensing partner. So think of it like Atlanta, Centennial Olympic Properties wanted everything from the mascot to management of certain events in and around Atlanta to management of certain events around the United States and, you know, subsequently around the world to always have a centralized corporate identity okay. and a structure and a set of standards and practices that could be followed universally so that the brands knew that there was some continuity. And that their IP would be entrusted with a group of people that involved certainly Chris Welton's group who sold the partnerships, then to the licensing group that made the partnerships come alive. And rather than have 19 or 20 different agencies who might be involved in buying packages, they wanted one group that could effectively organize and keep effectively a line of sight for management uh, of exactly how people were going to engage in the brands. Hmm. And it was really really ahead of its time, I think they throw away names much more carefully here today than they did back then. And the only thing they came up with was we're gonna make you the official event management company in the Olympic Games. Oh, so it sounded like we're doing everything. No, that's not the case at all. Right, right, we were merely we were merely responsible for almost fundamentally the activation and licensing oversight. Companies could choose to use us. Companies could choose not to use us. If they used us, we effectively had a a licensing fee that we would return back to the Olympic Games, it was in the company's best interest to use us because when it came to having the IP or the vault markets of things you could use, we were a single source provider. And so much like the NBA now has a team business services unit and the NFL has a club member business unit, the Olympics didn't think that way in the, the, you know, 96 or 2000 or 2004, eight, et cetera. Atlanta got them thinking that it was about intellectual property and the correct management of that corporate identity that would create value. And they were very much spot on. So mm. good on Mr. Payne, Bob Hollander, Judy Steele, and and the executives of Atlanta for seeing the future, you know, eight,
0: maybe 10 years ahead. Yeah, I like it. Interesting. Now, last question on there before we move on. Um, so what was the business model? You guys got paid by who and how?
1: We were ultimately passed through the licensing and or the sponsorship arm, and each deal was different. But for example, McDonald's was a Atlanta Centennial Olympic Properties partner. Mm-hmm. They were an IOC partner uh, at the top level. And they were a licensee through uh ACOG and ACOP together. So they had three different ways to connect to the Olympic movement, right? The rings mm-hmm. themselves around the world, yeah. the rings with the Atlanta mark in the United States. Uh, Or I should say North America, because it was a little bit different back then. And then there was the activation of the assets, whether they're creative marks, whether they were historical marks, or in the case of uh, the mascot, why, you know, that particular mascot was much to do about that mascot. If you know the history of, of Izzy, the mascots, generally speaking, are one of the few things around the world that a child or a parent can pick up and actually hug or give to their children and i know it sounds trite to say that but it's very difficult to feel emotionally connected to a poster it's a lot different than when your mother or your father come back from you know an overseas trip and say here is the panda from the chinese games here is
0: the eagle from such and such game here is the bear from moscow olympics um would be able to provide those those uh did, licensing products then? absolutely marcus oh, we right. wrote up okay.
1: programs and The licensees would pay a fee to have our involvement, or the sponsors would pay a fee, and then we in turn would pay a royalty back to Atlanta. Got it. Okay, makes sense.
0: Yeah, totally makes sense. Great, interesting. Well, you know that's an you know now from what I can see, you didn't actually stay all the way to the games uh, because at least from your from LinkedIn here it shows. Then in '95, um, you got your first uh, taste of entrepreneurship here um, and started (laughs) Delos Associates. um, yeah. Sort of. Then, kind of runs, I guess, over the games as well. So, you know, what happened there? Uh, did you sort of no, see it, it, an opportunity it, to maybe do something on your own, still linked to the games of what you've learned there, or how would you describe it? It's, you're right about the entrepreneurial bug. Here's what happens there.
1: I am a very young executive, enjoying my time. The one thing the Olympics are great for is you will be unemployed at some point in time. The things end. And I was constantly reminded that you did not want to be going deep into the games without your next place landed. Hmm. And at that time, one of the groups that I was overseeing was heavily involved in cycling. And for me, they approached me and said, we really like the style that you brought to this. We're looking for someone to effectively bring our program in this case, track cycling, velodrome cycling, which has a very large global appeal, mm-hmm. uh, maybe not so well known in the United States at that time. And this obviously predates uh, a lot of the success of track uh, and road cycling or criterion cycling. Right. And fortunately right. for us, as I, as I often say, we walked right into accounts. So knowing a lot of the partners, knowing that cycling was growing in the United States, they approached us, uh, and I say they in this case, uh, the, what would be the trials, the Olympic trials, mm-hmm. with an approach to manage that, sell that, and I thought that would be an interesting place to be. I also knew that the sponsors were also supportive of cycling. Uh, as a gender-neutral sport, as a global sport, uh, there was a tremendous business uh, behind the business of cycling in the United States and, like around the world, a lot of people ride bicycles. Marcus, right? So mm-hmm. it's very difficult to say I'm going to go run, you know, track and field and jump the hurdles and and you know throw a javelin, but. A lot of people have been on their bikes, (laughs) you know, so it had an easy connection to to the general public. They may not ride like Marty Notstein, the uh, ultimately, you know, an Olympian and a gold medalist uh, in Sydney and an American, obviously. But they knew what a bike felt like. Right. And I liken it to, you know, people drive cars. They may not necessarily be drag racing or NASCAR racers or Formula One racers, but they've been behind the wheel. So we had this opportunity to go and produce that particular event. It came off very well. Our clients, uh, you know, involved everybody that was already involved in Atlanta. So it was easy with UPS and Home Depot and Coca-Cola and General Motors, who were all major partners of Atlanta. And we did some other things around the auto racing business at that time. It was starting to pick up here in the U.S. And fortunately, uh, one of the major NASCAR ownership families, uh, as a track ownership family, Uh, one of the patriarchs of that family approached me. Uh, right about near the end and said, I have a project we're working on and we'd love you to come to us. And I was able to flip our portfolio, as they say in the agency business. And you know what that means, uh, into another opportunity that was more definitely, uh, racing at the time. And that's how we made the transition to racing.
0: Yeah, I was going to say so that that clearly is. Uh, where it sounds like the, your first taste of motorsports there coming in, and that was, uh, if I read correctly here, it was Glenn Milder, Miller. Miller oh, is that the name of the the race team or? Um,
1: no, the Glenn was a client. Um, very small Arca Racing team, and maybe some NASCAR stuff. The the parent company and the family behind Pocono Raceway, which is the Mattioli's, who still have control. Uh, of that particular track, a very successful track outside of New York and Philadelphia. Um, Joseph Mattioli approached me with a strategy that they had at the time for building out new tracks. Remember, this is essentially post-96, and NASCAR starting to ascend into a much more national sport as opposed to a regional sport, and the ratings were just starting to bubble up, and there was some staleness, if you will, particularly within uh, Major League Baseball at that time on television. And they came to me and said, we want to do more and we need people who know commercial rights and we're trying to get uh, not more professional. NASCAR has always been professional, but we're trying to get much more uh, infrastructure and understandings from an analytic standpoint to the business of what we're doing Mm -hmm. and how we compote that. And that's kind of what led to me moving into, you know, the different roles, the with them, I mean, they and they had multiple holdings between Chesapeake Motorsport Development Corporation and what they were doing at Pocono Raceway and ultimately what they were doing at South Boston Speedway Raceway. So, you know, you're, you're essentially in the front seat or very much in the front of the bus, if you will, as NASCAR's about to explode. And again, I'll go back to Ed Renzi. Mr. Renzi made a comment to me uh, a couple times through the years that they at McDonald's were seeing significant growth and return on invested capital with NASCAR that was proportionately larger than their investment in major league baseball at that time. Mm. And that's a big deal for for McDonald's because they are a global spender and like any other major player when they see returns like that they double or in some case triple down
0: and they did during that era. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Now um, so you, so let's let's talk about Chesapeake Motorsports here. Uh, you know, again? Also, just to get a sense here, you know, what, what? How old were you at that time? Just uh, sort of roughly framing it. Uh, you know, what age you're now? Uh, by the time you're doing this sort of stuff here.
1: You well, know, in Chesapeake, I would have had to been early, maybe late twenties, early thirties. I was very fortunate because I know when I went to work for Mister Campbell, Rod Campbell, um, and he had an investment called MFP and Mr. Campbell had built Campbell & Company uh, to this day, still the global agency record for Ford Racing. Uh, When I went to work for Mr. Campbell, I remember that because being CEO for the first time for someone else um, was a very deep and concerning issue for me, uh, because I wanted to be successful. I also wanted to personally not let down Mr. Campbell uh, and his family, uh, his wife Sandra and Rod were wonderful people to my wife and myself and, and our children. Uh, but I was 32 then, so I must have been a little bit younger than that.
0: Hmm. All right, cool. Yeah, it always helps to, you know, give a sense of that. Um, so, you know, so Chesapeake, you are, if I sort of read it correctly again, it was all about advertising, sponsorship, licensing deals, um, you know, tr- bringing in revenue streams, looking at, I guess, some of your skills from you picked up at the at the Olympics um, and then turning it, transiting it into the world of motorsports. Is if that would be a best description of those a couple of years there? I think that's very fair. I think for for me,
1: now we have the benefit of looking back at what they say, transferable skill sets, right? And we can look at it from an academic perspective. You don't know that, Marcus, when you're going through it. It was merely about connecting with people. I had a very good relationship with folks at General Motors from the 96 games. I was easily the youngest person at Easton events. And that's simply because Olympic games, for those who don't know, don't pay well. Why? Because if you are a a uh, tenured executive and you're trying to break into their sports business. Um, the Olympics guarantee you wonderful resume build. They guarantee you a tremendous amount of workload, but they also guarantee you unemployment because at some point the Olympics end, right? right. And the Olympics of 96 didn't necessarily have the ability to go out and say, we're going to pull people from the national football league or major league baseball because those level executives weren't leaving tenured positions and roles. So It's a wonderful time to be a young executive that was coupled with some of those major partners in the case of McDonald's or General Motors and Home Depot and a few others that were just starting to see the growth of motor racing. And in this particular case, NASCAR specifically, as maybe the next thing they needed to spend money, time and attention. I liken it to what we're going through with esports around the world right now. Right. Not quite sure, but we'll know when we get there. And the numbers that they're drawing by average viewership were impressive. Let's start investigating and seeing where it lands. So for Chesapeake, CMDC, it was also part of the Mattioli groups, uh, the same folks that own Pocono. And Joe Mattioli and the family had some theories about building new tracks and more sponsorship. And in my role, I was responsible for helping them craft that plan. And one of those particular programs was with um, a major soft drink company. And at the time for what it was. It was a significant transaction financially and larger than some of the better tracks that were running in the U.S., and that helped propel me personally because I was the author of the strategy, and uh, I can remember only because I keep one of these vivid memories, like I said, for certain business things. I could probably forget my own mother's birthday, but unfortunately, I can remember exactly where I was when when I closed on something. We had done a transaction that had caught the attention of... Bill France Jr. uh, through a luncheon meeting with uh, a few people at NASCAR about one of the projects that CMDC was uh, proposing. And one of our corporate partners had signed an agreement with us that was at that time, moderately high seven figures, well in advance of a shovel in the ground. And that became what was called contractually obligated income before Marcus people understood you can bank that like you do with sales. And I can remember, as if this happened yesterday, that at that lunch, the the family that is still very much ownership of NASCAR simply wanted to ask how we did the deal. And when I explained that there was vastly more unique visitors to NASCAR that were outside of the venue that were looking for ways to connect than there were ever going to be at NASCAR venues. And look, NASCAR venues are still very large venues. Mm. And even to this day, while they may not be drawing 200,000 people that they were doing maybe in the early 2000s, they're still drawing 150,000. So on any given weekend, they're they're the largest sporting event in the state that they're participating in. But in this particular case, this soft drink company saw the value of that customer at retail and was willing to kind of put a halo of say 300 miles around the venue. Mm. And when you start engaging like that, Marcus, frankly, you have an unfair financial advantage over just about every other sport because in stick and ball sports in America, you are limited with your ability to say market the Miami Heat outside of 75 or 100 miles of Miami. You have a territorial right. Oh, yeah. you're, uh, you're limited, say, for the Philadelphia Flyers. Obviously, I was at Comcast Spectacor, course, so I can speak with that one with great uh, attainment. But you can't do that in NASCAR. NASCAR tracks are larger. The teams themselves have an ability to essentially speak uh, nationally or internationally. So – with that ability being very unique to that sport, and to be fair, the soft drink companies being very granular, it was really easy to have a dialogue about how to engage a customer in a meaningful way to see a return on invested capital and engage them effectively for eight weeks prior to an event. Marcus, you and I have both been around events our whole lives. If you can show someone at brand switch at a classically packaged good company, you can unlock tremendous amount of money. And so for me on a personal basis, having closed that transaction and having CMDC or Chesapeake Motorsports Development Corporation be the beneficiary and this proposed NASCAR track, uh, which I believe was called Thunder Bay at the time, uh, which was proposed for the Baltimore, Washington area, D.C. area, uh, it opened up another layer of relationships with the France family that to this day I enjoy.
0: Yeah, and the 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 soft drink every time was Pepsi, I believe. Right? Is that correct? Or <laughs> yes, it was. Okay. Very good. <laughs> now, all right. Well, let's move on to the MFP. You mentioned it already earlier. Uh, Rob Campbell there uh, as the yeah. owner, uh, bringing you in, um, being a, the the marketing agency um, of Ford Motor or Ford Performance Division, I guess. Um, so, talk a bit about that. Uh, you know the role there. You again. You were a couple of years there um again how would you describe it um your role was president ceo you said earlier you know it was the first time maybe you were now a ceo but for someone else uh you know again there are there are all sort of names here which again don't mean that much to me but i'd love you to tell us a bit about it the monon racing team and of course various other things you did with with other uh, car companies etc so talk a bit about it what was the whole sort of remit of that agency
1: Sure. So let me make a level set here. So Rod Campbell uh, and and his family very much changed the trajectory uh, to myself and my family and my outlook on lots of things in life. Um, I just attended his memoriam a few, uh, few weeks back, um, and uh, there's a loss for me professionally and personally, very much so. So Rod Campbell was very fortunate to build Campbell & Company, which is a different company than MFP, into the global agency of record for for uh, Ford. So all of Ford automotive and aftermarket performance, effectively the racing division that ride and drives, the things that are the sexy bits, if you will, of, of race cars and high performance around the world, Rod had built a model for standards and practice guidelines of how Ford would communicate to media, how they communicate to fans, how they communicate to the racing enthusiasts. And that model was exceptionally well built. And Rod was also an incredibly good uh, judge, I always felt, of people. He had a very good finger on how to get the most out of his, his folks, how to empower them for their own success. Rod had just sold a big chunk of his company but remained, obviously, chairman emeritus of Campbell and & Company. And he had some offshoot investments as a part of it, an MFP was one of those investments. It stood for marketing for fun and profit, which was just something Rod was very much in tune with at that stage in his career. Mm -hmm. He had built arguably, I thought, one of the nicest offices I've ever been to in Malibu, California. And I had actually been told through a friend in the racing business that Rod was looking for a CEO and one of the candidates had dropped out because Rod was also a taskmaster. And this was very much servicing uh, a gentleman who had been very successful, uh, that would be a 24-7 kind of role, and it's not necessary for everyone. And this particular executive said, you'd be perfect for this. Rod's looking for someone that has had good experience, that wants to grow in this space. Obviously, we were having some set measure of success as a company. Uh, and for me individually, certainly the Pepsi situation, as you aforementioned, was helpful uh, because it's a very small world in, in, the, in the sports business. And when I met Mr. Campbell, he interviewed me in his house uh, right on the water there in Pacific Coast Highway and said, I've got this idea. I want us to be supportive of Campbell and company. I want to be supportive of his personal investment in Mo Racing. Mo Nunn, uh, Morris Nunn, was a uh, legendary engineer in Formula One, had Ensign Racing in Formula One, and would later come to the United States, Marcus and be the top engineer for Ganassi Racing, winning four world championships in the IndyCar world. And with the support of Mercedes-Benz, they asked Morris Nunn to put together a Mercedes-Benz IndyCar program. And of course, Morris turned to Rod to say, I need someone to handle the marketing, the sales and build out the commercial operations. I will handle the engineering. And Rod said, hey, I've got this MFP company. I'm trying to do something similar, Um, be supportive of what we do with Ford, but clearly Mercedes and Ford can't sit in the same house. Um, And it's a different company. And I'm gonna create it here in Malibu and we're gonna work out of Malibu, Detroit and wherever else we need to be. And lo and Uh, behold, I get the interview. And when we get the interview, Um, I think it's going well, and I remember this because, again, I told you I have one of these Rain Man-ish kind of qualities, I guess, positively about little minutiae things to me. But I flew from Baltimore, Washington, because remember at that time I'm at CMDC, since you asked to get granular on this call, and I got on a plane in my suit, tie, flew out to Los Angeles, drove to Malibu, met with Rod and Sandra Campbell. And interviewed effectively the whole day. And I was getting ready to leave because I had a late night red-eye flight back. And Rod said, is there any way you would be willing to stay an extra day or two? And, of course, I had only brought one change of clothes, the ones I was wearing. <laughs> and I said, sure. Um, can I ask, you know, is there something we missed that we didn't cover off of, a, you know, a nine-hour day or whatever? And he goes, I want you to meet some of the other members of our organization and several couldn't make it today, and several are in Orange County, and if you don't know Los Angeles at all, you know, if you say Orange County's near Malibu, geographically, you'd be correct, but because of the nature of driving cars in Southland of California, it could take you three hours with traffic. So I said, of course. I literally went to a Brooks Brothers, (laughs) bought some more clothes, and um, stayed. And here's what's interesting, Marcus. I stayed in the Campbell's home that night. They had this beautiful home, And they had multiple spare rooms for their existing employees to stay when they came to California. Because as I said, Rod, wonderful company. And they opened up with very, very ingratiating hospitality. And as I got to work with Rod over the next two days, um, it was quite clear that we had an emotional connection, that he liked the grit, if you will. He very much liked the entrepreneur mindset. Um, But he also wanted to depart a lot of his wisdom into into people. He was just a very strong people person. And he said, look, I'm looking for a CEO. I'm also looking for someone to do it the way I'd like it to be done. And I feel that you could be that person. And we cut that transaction over the next 48 hours. And then lo and behold, I become, you know, the managing director of the racing operations commercially, as well as the president of MFP. And then we set off on a journey together. And the only comment I had said to Mr. Campbell was, if by chance he were not to stay in racing, um, I wanted the the ability to leave. Because for me, why the automotive marketing was really important, it wasn't where my passion was, Marcus. I, I liked what we were doing at CMDC and with the Pocono family and everyone else in racing. So the racing part for IndyCar and what Rod wanted to do in Formula One uh, on a commercial rights basis uh, with then Mr. Eccleston, uh, the owner of Formula One for those at that time, for people who don't know, uh, that that was very interesting to me. If it was simply running an agency, um, I'd already done my own. I thought I did a decent job. And I could go do that again. But n- knowing who Rod was, wanting to learn from someone like that, that had huge interest to me. Hmm. Um, oh, that and it sense. was advertised, you know, it was seven days a week for, you know, two plus years until Rod uh, sold out his interest in the racing team. Right.
0: And, I guess, and that led into TSI then, right? The TSI agency, where that was sort of your next stop before, of course, you started your own. So, why don't we just have a quick look at that? Uh, because, again, and, and maybe I'm misreading it, but uh, it appears to me it was sort of also where you started to work, doing work with General Motors or GM, uh, which then led into what you were doing later on, of course, with your own agency. Is that sort of a good description of how it led from one to the next here?
1: I think the description of the racing, certainly, Marcus, I started meeting General Motors because they were a major partner in Atlanta for the 96 games, and then they also also effectively stayed the same, if you will, for Delos, and obviously back in NASCAR, they were heavily involved. So I have General Motors blood, if you will, through my entire lifespan here, even to this day. Um, So I think that's the way I would explain it. And General Motors uh, was also part and parcel of the reason uh, that TSI came into my life, because when Mr. Campbell said he was going to exit from the racing business, it, it allowed a little part of my contract to be uh, effectively checked off, right? I could leave if I wanted to and pursue other racing interests. And as much as I really enjoyed who Mr. Campbell would be, and I would later work with Rod on many projects. And he would be hired actually by me later in life on a couple of different projects that we were involved with. Um, Just because of personal relationship and my enjoyment of working with people that I like, um, I was approached by another group that was building off an entire what is now considered e-com, but essentially at that time was essentially licensing, merchandising and social commerce. um, And TSI had built a nice little business with the American Network QVC, which was at that time owned by Comcast and uh, I think Barry Diller. Uh, at the time had some from now IAC. It wasn't IAC at the time. And they approached me looking for a small equity partner and a chief operating officer of their growing NASCAR operation, as well as their licensing, uh, merchandising and marketing agency. Mm -hmm. And that that was a nice fit because for that time, we were working on a project to not just obviously increase what we're doing in NASCAR, but also grow up QVC business, Uh, which wasn't necessarily something I was on every single day, but certainly knew the model and had a great team of people that were working on it every day. And it also led to General Motors' question of me if I could promote uh, a Le race or an IndyCar race in Washington, D.C., which later on we would actually go and do, uh, that would become the Cadillac Grand Prix of Washington, D.C. Marcus, the one comment I've always said to people uh, looking back at it now 20 years is that I can call – Pretty much every partner I've ever had and talk to them as if I was talking to you, like you and I reconnecting eight to 10 years uh, or since 2007 when we did the first uh, meeting, I think, in Singapore in advance of our Formula One work uh, in Singapore. I could talk to them as if I was talking to them a week ago. And I've always said that, you know, business will come and go. You're going to juggle balls, if you will. Think of a juggler. And the glass balls are people. Don't drop those. You know, business, that's up and down. It'll bounce up and down. Sometimes you win, sometimes you lose. Sometimes you get the better of a deal. Sometimes an unintended consequence is that you don't get the better deal or it doesn't work out for the favor of the other person and there may be some personal resentment or whatever. Those balls are rubber, Marcus. They will come and go over time. The glass balls that you're juggling, they are the people, they are the relationships. So for me, knowing General Motors, getting to meet Mr. Renzi, getting to meet the France family, the Mattiolis, the Campbells. These are lifelong relationships that have paid dividends well past their redemption rate, as they would say. Um, and so TSI was a wonderful time. We did a great event together. Uh, Mr. Devidar, uh, myself and the late Don Penos, uh, who was chairman of Elon Pharmaceuticals and the then founder of the American Lamal series, we produced the Grand Prix in Washington, D.C. Uh, to this day, there is a purpose-built Grand Prix track, uh, 2.66 miles, uh, built for that race next to RFK Stadium. And we ran the American Le Mans Series race sponsored by General Motors. It was the first, and Marcus, you'll appreciate this, it was the first North American sponsorship by Red Bull, a then unknown brand. All right. And we did the Red Bull paddock area. And I uh, give credit to the ACO and American Le Mans series because the paddock was almost right on top of the catch fence because we built it up high. So the fans could have something in turn one to see the event ended up doing very well on NBC, doing very well on CBS. We had a Saturday and Sunday show. Um, and I think we drew just a tick over 72, maybe 73,000 on a Sunday and less than a little bit on Saturday, but in the heart of Washington, D.C., with 140 some embassies there. It did well on all of the commercial measurements. The difficult part with Washington DC is that it's Washington DC and the politics of the city and the district and then the uh, head of uh, the stadium authority made it too difficult to run again. And unfortunately we were asked to scuttle and we did. And, uh, but as I've often been told, we ran on time. Everyone got paid. People uh, would have enjoyed it to stay on. Certainly I would. Certainly George would have. Um, and we had permission to go do more of them if we so choose. So mm. to me – Sounds uh, familiar. Like, well,
0: uh, we have a yeah. st- I have a story yeah. like this in KL, actually, in Kuala Lumpur. Uh, it was called the KL City Grand Prix. Uh, so we were racing uh, uh, streetcars, right? Um, and uh, so not not open-seater stuff. Uh, it was amazing. We we, we did it with the first time ever – you had legally cars going 200-plus kilometer an hour in the middle of the of Kuala Lumpur. Uh, similar, you know, great event. It was all free. So we had, you know, we had a couple of hundred thousand people over the weekend there. Uh, it all looked commercially ready to go and and really turn it into something big and then yeah politics and and certain other things got in the way and yeah it was a one-off only so those things happen um but there there are great memories uh, i was i think it was around two fifteen or 16 when that all happened there uh, but obviously it led to the next one which is really where we want to spend a bit of time on now and of course is then you know your own agency ski and company which you built um, and then ran and sold and so there was you know, it was a whole bunch of people pieces to it, which we really unpack now, um, you know, in the next, whatever, a few minutes here. Um, first of all, let's just explain everyone what this ski company mean. Obviously, it has nothing to do with skiing. Um, so uh, maybe just, just share that for a minute and then we'll get into okay. the business side of it. Yeah.
1: Okay. So you're absolutely right. It has nothing to do with skiing, not to take anything away from skiing. So as I said, Mr. Rod Campbell was very influential in my life. Rod named his company, Campbell and Company uh it wasn't maybe particularly original because it was rod's last name for me starting almost from the 96 games um those around me could not pronounce my last name correctly which you did well done so they would (laughs) simply say ski right go reach out to ski skis over there skis here okay as my mother used to say they call me anything but not late for dinner i don't care and i always said that's fine interestingly Uh, enough ed renzi who was the CEO of McDonald's, someone also a mentor and would later be on the board at Ski & Company, uh, would call me Ski. And then when I do get a phone call, and in this case, it was General Motors again who says to me, hey, we have this unique problem and we're trying to organize all of our portfolio in racing globally. General Motors, the largest manufacturer of cars and trucks in the world, Mm -hmm. has a problem. And when big companies have big problems, they bring big solutions. Fortunately for me, the people who were asking me to kind of lens out this were people that I had known now for five, six, seven, eight years and said, would you take a crack at writing or thinking about how we should be thinking about General Motors problems in the world of automotive performance and specifically commercial rights acquisition and how we're going about it? And what you had was some very high profile uh, and, you know, these are the things that make for great movies. But it was quite interesting prior to the creation of Ski & Company that General Motors had put themselves, without telling too many tales out of school, a unique situation where their brand teams, Pontiac, you know, GMC, Chevrolet, uh, and I can go on, uh, were effectively blindly competing against each other for property rights. So one of the more famous stories in American sports history is that the PGA, the Pro Golfers Association, was out bidding up for the official car of the PGA. And, of course, General Motors had a major investment at that time with Tiger Woods, uh, with the Pontiac brand, if I recall. And PGA was trying to capitalize on on what would become Tiger Woods' ascendancy into uh, who he was as a player and, and, and a seminal figure in sports. Hmm. However, General Motors was, was separated. So each brand team didn't talk to each other. So here's the largest manufacturer of cars and trucks in the world. And the Pontiac team was Pontiac itself, team. Right? Yeah. They were, they were so insulated that when the agency doing their job on behalf of the client, the PGA, was soliciting bids and going through the bid process, effectively it came down to two organizations. Hmm. And they were kept bidding each other up and up, third round, fourth round, and so forth. And then ultimately it comes down to that, hey, today Buick becomes the official – I may get this wrong. I think it, it was Buick uh, – uh, becomes the official of the PGA. And it turns out that the group that they were bidding over three or four rounds to get it higher, higher, higher was literally three or four floors beho- below them wow. in the same building. All right. So okay. what happens after that? Yeah. Okay. Timeout. Yeah. Right at the top. Uh, different leadership then certainly uh, than today. They see we got to reset how we go about things because we literally just overspent against ourselves. Yeah. This is not unnew. This has happened historically in these large companies once they get to certain scale. So yeah. in my case, two executives that are still involved in automotive, uh, who also I think as dear friends and mentors, uh, David Pettit, who's currently at IMSA, which is a major sanctioning body in North America for sports car racing, and Steve Shannon, who at the time was the director of GM's racing operation – and Mr. Shannon would go on later to run Kia here in the U.S., and he now sits as an investor uh, in in the VC and private equity world, had asked me uh, specifically to think on how you could organize General Motors to be quite candidly closer to how Mr. Campbell organized Ford, and could it be done? Well, Ford was very different in the sense that they were decentralized, Um, but they were not necessarily – operating in a vacuum, whereas General Motors was decentralized and operating in a vacuum. So it was the worst of all cases. And for me, I wrote the white paper. And again, remember I talked about that granularity of deal making? Mm -hmm. Um, After writing the white paper, Mr. Pettit uh, said, please come to California Speedway. We've got an event. I want to talk to you about this. And in the course of that meeting, he says, this is exactly what we need. And uh, we'd like you to do it. And nice. I said, David, that's fine, but I have a handful of people. This, what I wrote, was written for you as to how I would approach it with your checkbook um, because you will need an enormous amount of investment to do this at scale. And I think David's comment was, Chris, we buy everything by the ocean container at General Motors. So write it up. And that was the birth of Skiing Company. All right. So again, good fortune uh, maybe favors the bold or the brave. Uh, how about the grit? <laughs> we were just yeah. there, and we had built a good re- relationship on a personal basis with General Motors. And I left California Speedway with a with an agreement in practice to be uh, the global agency of record for GM racing around the world, a single-source PO. There were only a handful of these at General Motors. And in that world, Marcus, it changed the life of myself and, thankfully, many, many other people. We call them skiers now, I guess. That's what <laughs> I hear from the or at Andretti, or people who are still in IMSO or at NASCAR that worked for ourselves um, and worked alongside me. But functionally, we then took the, the concept of GM, which does not race anything. No one races a GM, it doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. It's just a name. We took that concept and wrote the corporate identity and commercial acquisition strategy on a global basis, country by country. Brand by brand, that meant we yeah. literally broke down: England for Buxhall and what it could compete in; Opel for DTM, what it could compete in; Chevrolet across multiple platforms around the world; uh, the Shanghai Auto Group strategy that they had a joint venture with; yeah. Holden in Australia; Australia. Hummer in—I you know, think this is how you and I met—Hummer in uh, in the in the MENA markets, particularly at that time the Emirates are opening up and when i came back to general motors and said here's the budget here's how we're going to do this great and of course that kind of thinking could only be scaled by general motors the corporate identity and the standards and practice guidelines that we wrote for them you know shook up the tree definitely because we were asked to because now suddenly different brands didn't necessarily have the decision capacity general motors wanted a filter through us to determine was this the kind of company that can we do business with? Is this the kind of company that has the ability to pay? One of the most important elements for GM Racing at that time was to enter and win Le Mans. Uh, and, and, it, and, and they have successfully with Pratt & Miller Engineering in Detroit being the team organizing the racing componentry of it. And at that time, uh, Mr. Shannon and Doug Ducart, uh, who's I think still with Ganassi Racing now, had a vision. And their vision was... They would have one group like ours quantifying the level of investment and then soliciting around the world people who would be partners of ilk mind like General Motors. General Motors thinks in terms of 10- and 15-year relationships, not transactions, and I think that modeling would later be something that I know we shared through the years at the Motorsports Business Forum in Monaco, the same one in Singapore. I think when I came in to meet you the first time, that kind of thinking wasn't being done. And when I look back on it now, um, you know, I can I can say with great humbleness that when Chevrolet exited the IndyCar business and then reentered the IndyCar business, I sat in a meeting and some of the same executives with Chevrolet took out a piece of paper that was written eight to 10 years before and said, here's our model to re-enter IndyCar racing with our engine program and our commercial rights strategy. and a smile curled in my, <laughs> in my face because at, at least in this case, uh, Mark Kent and a few others in that meeting for GM said, Chris, you will know this plan. And I said, yep, I do. We wrote it and I see that you're still using it. So it must be working for you. And that was the best compliment we could ever get. And uh, now, some of those standards and practice Marcus, are now the standards and practice guidelines around the world. We were not the agency in the traditional sense that hey, we're gonna pitch you something and then move to the next team and just cut deals. We weren't deal makers like that. Hmm. There was a pretty well-established story about what we were doing at that time, I think in Business F1 Magazine, if that, for your listeners or viewers, if they remember the magazine. And it, it, it was pretty close to exactly how we worked. We were a beneficial partner to whatever General Motors wanted to bless. So Lamont spent a lot of time finding partners and looking for the right partners there. Certainly NASCAR, uh, drag racing, obviously IndyCar twice. But what people didn't know that General Motors had interests in Formula One, even if they weren't, if you will, a manufacturer. At that time, they had a minority interest in the ownership of Ferrari. They had a minority interest in some of the components in Formula One. And because they were General Motors, oftentimes people would say, look, go with the group that can write the biggest check. And they could. So we would have to oversee uh, different things. And, And, you know, again, you know, life is made through stories. You asked me to tell one, myself and David Pettit. Uh, flew to Monaco to have a meeting with Formula One. That we determined we would not have this meeting with logos on our shirts. General Motors was very careful. They taught me better to be a submarine than an, than a uh, aircraft carrier. And we had the meeting about the then spec strategy for Formula One to go to a uh, standard V8. I don't know if you remember this. This gets really granular here, Marcus. Mm-hmm. Well. The standard V8 block eight engine is the engine that wins at Le Mans in the Corvette. So now, for the first time, if F1 had made the decision to go with the V8 strategy, this would have been mid two thousands, if I recall. Myself and David flew in to say, not only would we potentially participate, we could be an engine manufacturer for multiple teams. And certainly, there wasn't a check we could write, couldn't write uh, to support it. Um, And of course, Formula One went another way. So GM has always historically said, if we don't actually sell it, we're not actually supporting it. So to their credit, they've been on that theme uh, since the dawn of time. Uh, So, you know, we would be with GM for a long time. And of course, Skiing Company would branch out because of GM, uh, we had scale. And we had real scale offices that were. Well, was you know, it exclusive?
0: exclusive, as in you were not allowed to do and work with other companies? Obviously, not in motorsports, but you know, in a general sense, or um, you were allowed to do other things.
1: In the automotive sense, we were one hundred percent exclusive. So yeah, well, that, you, that makes sense. You, so yes, absolutely. So much so that um, years later, when Toyota wanted to enter NASCAR, the then leadership of Toyota approached uh, approached Skiing Company about you know could we have you maybe look at Toyota? And and at that time, General Motors was contemplating and they did ultimately decide to bring some of the business in house. And I went to GM and said, look, Toyota has approached us. I have a lot of employees. I wanna look after them and their colleagues or friends. One of the things I was always probably the most proud about skiing company was we just didn't lose people. I mean, every agency in the world went after our people. If I got one call, I got it a ton from Zach Brown's guys saying, hey, we want to hire this person. I love Zach to death. Hustler, works hard, has done a tremendous job at McLaren. But none of our employees ever left to go join JMI. Hmm. None of our employees left to go join, I can name six or seven other agencies. And they didn't because we had a very simple model. Everything you need and nothing you don't. And have respect for the for the professionalism. And let's enjoy ourselves. I mean, we're on earth so little in the scheme of things, um, make sure you take care of yourself. So if you are going to go fly and go to some other country on behalf of the client, take an extra day. Go see (laughs) Saipan. Don't just see the hotel in the airport. And it probably hurt our bottom line. But I think we lost one employee in all those years and we lost that particular employee because of a marriage. Uh, they were getting married and
0: moving on and, and, uh, ultimately interesting enough, that particular employee came back, you know? So the company grew to what, about 80, a hundred people, I think is what I read somewhere. Yeah. I
1: think we might've been, yeah. On, on what they would call now full-time equivalencies, right? Uh, because the racing business has seasonalities, you know, I think we we're a bit larger than that. There were certain contracts like the NOS energy drink, which is Coca-Cola. Uh, that activation account alone was a couple hundred over yeah. over a season. Okay. Um, so, you know, so I always projects, said that. that you, yeah, you beef yeah absolutely. we uh, we okay. swell up. Except, the biggest project we did at that time where we had just an overwhelming amount of people was at the time, the Coca-Cola 600, big NASCAR race, the longest one of the year for NASCAR, was being held, obviously, in Charlotte, the home of this race. But Coca-Cola had not yet purchased NOS Energy drink. And another energy drink was the official of NASCAR. And we had a really smart group of activation people. You can track this down somewhere on Google. We had gone to the Guinness Book of World Records, asked if anybody had approached them about the largest activation sampling strategy. No one had. We paid a fee to create the sector. And then with the benefit of NOS energy drink leadership, a lot of those men and women are interested enough at Body Armor right now. Um, And they said, how would we go about ambush marketing, but in a professional manner, nothing negative, just how do we get our product sampled by 170,000 people? And remember, the product got to be served cold markets, right? That's the whole point. Mm-hmm. So we had the budget to put, uh, I might be wrong here, but I think it was something like 10 to 12 refrigerated trucks in and around the Charlotte Motor Speedway area within the egress and degress lanes for the track. And as soon as the race ended, the trucks were parked with their permits and men and women were handing out full cans of NOS Energy drink cold. Well, if you've just spent six hours at a racetrack, you're absolutely fried because it's hot, sunny, and it's cold. And someone's handing you a cold drink of anything you're going to take. And we handed out, I I want to say, about 100,000 cans, aluminum cans of product within about 12 minutes. (laughs) And... That was great. What was even better was the immediate impact of people then going to convenience stores within 75 miles going, hey, where do I get it? And that's the power of social media because it was just starting to come into play. I had this great drink. Where do I get it? And, of course, uh, kudos to Mike Fine, who was running that particular company at the time and is now a body armor. Mike uh, made the most of it and suddenly picked up a lot of C-store accounts. And that's – those are the those are the things that make make a life.
0: Yeah, they're great stories there. Now let's let's uh, sort of let's move on a little bit and and but before we obviously move on to to the your next chapter in life here, that you sold the company um, again. Just just unpack a little bit. The reason behind it was just someone making a great offer, which you know was too good to refuse. Um, or again, there were other reasons why you wanted to move on, maybe or sort of you know just just what was the story there.
1: Well, I don't think it's so much move on. I think um, for me growth comes at a cost and I had young children at the time and anyone that's ever been in this space especially racing around the world you're not home. Uh, my wife had just gone through a pretty difficult bout of cancer and come through it and I was also looking for people that wanted to grow the way we wanted to grow And, you know, once you have General Motors, frankly, Marcus, everybody's calling you. And then suddenly we get NOS Energy drink. And, of course, people knew the rumor that Coke might buy them and Coke ultimately did buy them. And so you're sitting with General Motors. You're sitting with Coca-Cola. You know, come on. You you got two of the global players in sports and our board starts to look like a who's who. Uh, and the company grows, and now it's out of your hands, right? And it could get to a point where there isn't ever going to be a day off, and we opened up a small office in the Emirates to service uh, a client called Union Properties. They were the builders of Dubai Autodrome, and it was a series Old of Paul <laughs> sure
0: Yeah. Paul's yeah. <laughs> been on the so, podcast,
1: too. <laughs> so we, Yeah, so we, we, we opened have, up the, a, a thing called Speed Car Series for them, um, in fact, Speedcar, Car, if you remember, ran as the Saturday show with Formula One in uh, Saipang and, uh, I believe, Bahrain uh, in, in conjunction with the Career Cup. And for me, we were approached by one group in particular, uh, UK-based, that had a long history in uh, Formula One. Mm-hmm. And I liked that model. Um, and I very much wanted to see it thrive. And, uh, the leadership of that group at that time, um, was something I was copacetic with and had that leadership stayed in the way they did, I probably, uh, would, we'd still be running the skiing company. Um, because to me, it really was about the people. And, uh, it was probably my first lesson in life about, you know, quantifying that, uh, if there's change in control and leadership can move on when it's above you, but it's also a great lesson because, For me, it was about the business. We never took dollars out. We always poured it back in to grow, get better, get better, get better, get better. And I didn't have any kind of line of sight to say, well, we want to be here. We want to land there. We never viewed it from an exit strategy. However, at that time, Marcus, IMG is making calls. The early entrance of other agencies are saying, hey, what are you doing and we start fielding those calls. And several of them were all friends, all very well-respected in the industry, but they didn't really actually have Formula One experience. They didn't really actually have deep-set racing experience. And racing in North America was growing. And the energy drink group and the convenience store group and the classically packaged goods group uh, very different than saying, hey, I'm an agent for a player or something. And we weren't agents. We weren't transactional. There's nothing wrong with it, but we were thinking more, you know, how do we make a brand switch from one product to another utilizing a platform of racing or right. football, soccer or something like that. Right. Um, because skiing company would grow into doing digital programs for, for soccer clubs. Um, they would grow into running events for So, so who eventually companies.
0: bought the company actually? I have to admit, I'm not even sure who who ended up buying it the ski. The the, the company was bought by a new co of a collection of people
1: from a company called CSS Stellar, but All that right. was not the okay. ultimate buyer. Um, the ultimate buyer was principles from CSS oh. Stellar into a, into a hold co. All
0: right. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I'm, I am familiar with CSS Stellar, but uh, I have to admit, I know. All right. So they they buy, and then, as you said, there were some management changes, which sort of, I guess, eventually means you're moving on here. Um, And you set up, I guess, sort of a new group there. How do you pronounce that properly? Phoenicia? Is that correct?
1: Well, Phoenicia was born out of – yeah, when Phoenicia was born almost the same time I sold Skiing Company, only because there were several men and women that were not going to be interested, A, staying into the new co, or they had been with me for a long time, and they wanted to stay. And there were things that Skiing Company were going to go do that – had no involvement with me, Uh, or in some cases, now I'm only a minority owner, so I can't really speak about, you know, projects like F1 in the cinemas, things that were going on in in South Africa and the African continent that I had very little insight for. However, our cash flow was very good, so our funds were being utilized to do these other things, and I felt like, well, if these people want to stay and they want to do something, you know, we'll put them in Phoenicia and we'll do some other projects that are not necessarily competitive, or some other things that I'm interested in doing. I learned a lot of lessons in skiing company, and I always take those lessons, and I say, okay, I we'll would do this differently in hindsight, and would we'll do this differently going forward. I also found a lot out about myself, because for me, I didn't like the idea that you know people were numbers. What they made was a number, what the return on investment relative to time was a number, And, you know, the other side thought very differently. We were going to drive to a certain number no matter what the situation was uh, on a human uh, basis. And to me, I was like, look, you're missing the point. We built our business by doing business the same way, the same manner every day, being consistent. And stability is the key for brands like General Motors and Coca-Cola. And if we weren't going to have that in the persona of the very same people who they trusted, um, that was going to be really, really difficult for me to see the success that way. And it, and history served me right. And, uh, fortunately for me, those same brands that were very much part of uh, skiing company success then are in a lot of ways, the same people who pick up the phone now and say, Hey, we'd like you to take a look at it. So Phoenicia sits here about 12 years, uh, now, I guess 10, 12 years. And we've had different iterations. We've done different projects. Obviously, we did uh, a return to IndyCar racing for Newman Haas uh, after Paul's passing. Uh, Bertie Haas, Carl Haas's uh, wife, asked uh, if we would step in and attempt to rebuild the strategy to go back and, and be successful, particularly for the Indy 500. And we put a program together with Telemundo and Oriol Serbia, a race car driver at the time, to go back. And I think we finished fourth you know, which is pretty high up and they did pretty well with that. Um, and I enjoyed that very much. We did a number of different projects in in uh, football, um, you know, assisting teams in acquisition, buy side, sell side type stuff. We're not, we I mean, were not and have never been financial advisors, but when contractually obligated income became a huge part of naming rights, Marcus, that became a big driver. And frankly, Formula One deals are as big or bigger on an annualized basis than most naming rights deals. So, We built this window of being very good with multiple comma deals, and now the Rolodex was what we were doing in the APAC, what we were doing in China, what we were doing in the Emirates, and as people woke up to those markets – now, it's easy for you. You lived there. You and I met, I think, in 2007 when we at Skiing Company were doing advanced work for Formula One uh, uh, going into Singapore for the first night race. Um, There weren't many Americans that actually had that lens. And there certainly weren't any at scale. And I would probably say only uh, ourselves and JMI were probably the only two that actually had that foresight at the time. And for me, uh, it led it led to, you know, a lot of the other things I would ultimately go do, you know, both at Comcast Spectacore and and even to this day with Phoenicia separately. You know?
0: Yeah, no, definitely interesting. And, and like I said, I mean, we got we so many different facets of what you've been doing and, um, so I want to just pace ourselves a little bit so that we do cover a little bit of all of it before we're going to run out of time here. And, um, you know, and clearly there is always going to be – we could spend more because I do believe that you also were involved in the, in the purchase of FC Bologna uh, for, with a Canadian group there, right? That's one of the sort of uh, things you were involved in I remember uh, reading somewhere.
1: <laughs> you have a great memory. So, well, Bologna, yeah, was at the time was a Serie B team. And Joseph Tacopina and uh, and a Canadian investor who owns, I think he still owns Montreal Impact, um, had asked their counsel to retain someone to give a lens on how to improve the commercial return on Bologna, uh, do a potential stadium transaction, uh, and a host of different commercially focused things. And yes, Marcus, myself and uh, Attorney Stuart Goldfarb flew over to uh, Bologna. Uh, handful of times in rapid succession and we brought uh, a sports architect named Dan Meese who had built some wonderful facilities you know NFL facilities Olympic facilities and Dan always had a a good eye to how to extract commercial revenue from venues and if you've ever been to Bologna um, having traveled throughout northern Italy particularly for F1 or our automotive business you know and having gone to the games you know here's an incredibly passionate city in one of the most beautiful stadiums that had just fallen on uh, hard times relative to a lack of capital to repair. And they also needed to have some sporting culture brought to the team. And uh, to be fair, uh, they've done, I think, all of these things very, very well. And our involvement was important at the time. But like lots of things, we kind of come in, write our plan, submit some things they did, some things they chose not to do. Um, And I think they've been successful um, and that model actually is carried forward into some other clubs as I've seen, or we reached out, but yes, Bologna was, uh, was a very, you know, what I could say intense amount of work in a very short period of time. Um, and I, I recently pre COVID went to a game and you could see the touches of the stuff that we wrote for them, you know, hovering around the building. Hmm.
0: Interesting. Now, I want to touch a little bit because, again, you, you spent so, you know quite a, several years in these in these roles there on Front Row and uh, IRG, um you know, but maybe we'll just sort of see where we can quickly dive in there and then, you know, touch a bit on MP Silver because, you know, you were there during quite an interesting time as well. And I want to hear a little bit of your side of it. Uh, and then, of course, finishing up here, you know, where you're what you're doing now. Uh, now, with, with Front roll again, it, it is a Comcast spectra, spectra, spectacle company, which is a huge $5 billion business, I believe. Uh, but I'm not saying, I'm not sure everyone in the world knows really what they're doing. Maybe you just describe it real quick and then, of course, your role in there um, as the president at that time, right, of Front roll Marketing.
1: Sure. So when I sell Skiing & Company, we create Phoenicia, we're doing some work. Uh, I'm enjoying my time, but when you have one of these kind of unique events in your life, there are things you can't do, right? Um, and I, at the time, had built a very good relationship with a lot of the senior executives at Comcast Spectacore. Comcast Spectacore doesn't trade under that name any longer. I think they're Spectra, and now they've been purchased by Oakview Group, or I guess pending uh, federal approval because of the nature of the business and the scale, they will be purchased by Oakview Group. Um, both Mr. Snyder and Mr. Luco and some of the leadership there we're looking for a new president of their commercial rights group. Comcast Spectacor kept a company called Front Row Marketing Services and Front Row Analytics as a um, wholly owned subsidiary, but with a different name that would do the advanced work on naming rights, premium seat licenses, build-outs of commercial arenas, uh, and in some cases stuff right there in Singapore uh, where Comcast Spectacor is one-third – Investor and owner-operator of the Singapore Sports Hub. All right. Okay. um, Interesting. And so, again, global company looking to expand principally in in the Middle East where we had a lot of success and obviously Comcast Spectacore, I say we, the Phoenicia side and the ski side, had built Zaid Stadium in in, uh, Abu Dhabi. And these are manager companies, no differently than you see AEG or Oakview now. And uh, they're current CEO is going to take an early retirement, and particularly the leadership at the time wanted someone from an outsider's perspective. They had, had a lot of B-level accounts inside the company. They wanted to get more aggressive globally and go after, say, a Formula One or an EPL or America's Cup, um, things that took a little bit longer to actually germinate and then ultimately acquire and then ultimately sell. And they, they had great men and women there, but they didn't have anybody with that CV because everybody had come through the system. And so um, I had owned and operated for a very small period of my life uh, IHL-affiliated professional hockey team. The affiliation was with the Philadelphia Flyers, of which Comcast Spectacor owned. And, um, you know, again, one of those little life lessons, Mr. Snyder, uh, who was the founder of the Philadelphia Flyers, uh, and, the, you know, I always said the godfather of mo- the modern regional sports network, Mr. Snyder uh, and Mr. Luco, particularly in this case, Mr. Snyder, had approached uh, Peter Luca, who was president of Flyers at the time, to see if I would take a handful of players uh, on our roster uh, for the team that we owned that were maybe not capable of running uh, at the level of hockey we were playing professionally. But they were important to Mr. Snyder on a personal basis um, because they had come from a community that he was personally involved with. Uh, and I said, sure. You know, I, I can't speak to the hockey business. I'm not going to suggest who's going to be on the ice. We have a professional coach that had you know, come in from a scouting role with the Tampa Bay Lightning, if I recall at the time. And uh, but I can definitely get him to camp because I own the team. And when they got to camp, they were treated really well. Uh, our mentality was we were going to treat them as if they were in the NHL. Uh, sometimes we succeeded. I guess sometimes we failed. But we were going to treat them with uh with a level of acumen that i always saw the flyers treat their uh players and that was a big element of marcus for mr Snyder, because apparently later on other affiliated teams and the flyers i think at two or three at the time that where they were stashing players around the united states um just didn't take them or didn't we even want to listen mm-hmm. and my attitude was like look you're the parent company i enjoy the relationship um Of course, I'll take them. I can't say if they'll skate or not or actually play. And one of those players ended up actually making the club uh, or playing on the club, I guess, as a backup goalie. But it wasn't even that. It was the fact that here's the owner of the team saying, I have a request. And it's a modest request. And you don't have to fill it. But if you would, it would be helpful. Mm. Sure. That's the answer. So for me, Marcus, this business has always been the answer is yes. What is the question? We'll find a way. And that led to a dialogue that I had with Comcast Spectacor, And there's a lot I enjoyed at Comcast Spectacor. Uh, a lot of great people. It's wonderful thinking. But there's also some very interesting takeaways for me. Having owned and operated my own company, having run at a really smart and fast pace to be successful when it's yours – Comcast didn't move very fast,
0: <laughs>
1: yeah, and you know there's a there's an interesting story in one of the major trade publications here uh, in Sports Business Journal in North America about my time there. I didn't solicit the the story; it, it was written about what was going on around the NHL at the time and Comcast Spectacor being who they were. And the story came out, and it was both the best and worst day because I had very little to do with the story. Um, you know, I, I'm not here to write the copy, um, but the copy was accurate and it portrayed what was a successful component of Comcast Spectacore. And we were having success by every measurement and it was successful the group, but it it paid a little more attention to me than I would have liked. Um, but then again, I was the only X factor from one section of of the company to now suddenly a very definitely different company because – we did now have the America's Cup as a client. We did now have Norwich, the EPO, as a client. <clears throat> we did now have Formula One on different projects. We did now have the things that they tasked me to go get, uh, college football championships, or like uh, the Fiesta Bowl and stuff like that. And, you know, coming from, again, running your own agency, you know, the clock never stops. You're always on a two-minute clock, right, as they would say in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, but at Comcast, you know, why it was – Think fast. It might have been act slow. And I found that to be a little bit disconcerting You know, because my view was, look, we're going to do our business ethically always, honorably always, but we are going to pin our ears back and go. And if we wait, we will literally wait and put ourselves out of these gigs. Now I look back on it and the men and women at Comcast who do pick up the phone and say, how do you think about this, Chris, uh, are, are at the very highest level of leadership saying, boy, we really liked that speed. It's funny how speed suddenly becomes, you know, an asset. Um, and uh, so it worked out again. History kind of came to our side on that issue. But during my time there, there were oftentimes I would say, boy, for as successful as we are here, I thought we did things a little bit better at Skiing Company, if I'm being as honest as I can be. Hmm. Interesting.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, absolutely. There's a huge difference, of course, between a large company like Comcast and how they operate versus you know running your own agency. Now, now it sort of it, it kind of led into and and again, I just want to touch on it really for maybe a couple of minutes here on the on IR. You know, the couple of years then with IRG, which sort of in the way I look at it, it brought you back to your racing world, right? Uh, in a true sense. Uh, you know, having having hot rod and drag bike racing and, and also other um, elements which were part of that particular company, right? So, again, you spent a couple of years there as uh, vice chairman there uh, and the CEO, I guess. Um, so, again, what, uh, just tell us a bit about that, uh, just, uh, you know, a short version of it. Well,
1: it's really interesting. So, IRGSE uh, was wholly owned at that time by a private equity group called uh, – TPG Specialty Lending, which is part of TPG, Mm -hmm. very successfully run private equity company. I did not understand what change management was per se because I did not know that was really a thing uh, that it would later become. And they had run aground on uh, an IRGSE and they had overexpanded. And in some cases into Australia, they overexpanded and did not properly file the way they should have filed maybe in a lot of ways. Um, not, not deliberately just, you know, oversight really by the leadership at the time and the ownership group was changing and a uh, large headhunter can said, call said, look, we need people who know motor racing, certainly motorsports definitely can reset the clock here and then we can decide, do we keep it? Do we sell it? What do you want us to do with it?
0: Okay. And,
1: uh- and for me, um, you know, I love a good challenge, I've always viewed my career uh, for better or for worse, like an actor. I did not want to be pigeoned into just racing or to just analytics or to just marketing, you know, activation. I very much wanted to look back at my career at some point and say, I had an opportunity to play different roles, meet different people and enjoy my life. Um, and I looked at that going, you know what, this might be, this might be a good opportunity. And, and it was, And but it was very definitely one of those things where you're walking in and, you're going to have to quickly assess who's staying, who's going, where the bleeding is happening, and can we reset this thing mm-hmm. and reset it quickly because uh, specialty lending was a, was a different unit. It was already a unit where products go to where they're not performing well, and we had to make a lot of tough choices very quickly. We did ultimately put one of our components in the drag racing series uh, on ESPN uh, in a different component with uh, what it would now be ESPN Plus, but I guess at the time it was ESPN Digital. Uh, and that worked out very well. The biz- biggest success point of that, Marcus, was what we did in Australia. The IHRA Australia outfit, running in Sydney, running in Willow Bay, uh, running in Perth, um, you know, is incredibly successful. The men and women down there have done a great job, particularly Maurice Allen, um, who's the president of IHRA Australia, um, I installed him there. He was a, was a great find and, uh, that, that thing has really thrived now because it's a turnaround, different parts get pushed to different spots or get moved around the portfolio. And in some cases I understand that they're selling, uh, different parts of it off, but it was a, a short period of time that I very much enjoyed. Uh, for me, I think I would have enjoyed to do more of the, uh, sanctioning side globally because there was a window for that particular company that time with the FIA Uh, who were desperately looking for a global promoter uh, for drag racing around the world. And drag racing has a great future if it can get organized globally because the entire sport exists in three seconds. You know, you go from zero to 350 miles an hour. It's the ultimate Instagram or TikTok sport. And coming from Comcast, where we had a multi-billion dollar franchise in Fast and Furious, one of the first calls I made was to NBC Universal, who said, hey, we get it. How do we get involved? And we couldn't ever come over the we couldn't ever come over the top. There were a lot of people trying to configure, was this the right move? How much risk were we at? And risk profile becomes an issue. And there was risks, there's no doubt about it. And the risk profile was pretty deep uh, on anything new. And in our particular case, because it's global, and it's new, and we're trying to repair some of the issues, it was just too too early. Uh, But as I look at the FIA, or as I keep in conversations with uh, the, the side here in the U S that represents it. Uh, I look at drag racing and I say that particular form of the sport, as you all know, exists in just about every country. And it's not yet organized globally. And someone will come in, maybe private equity, maybe an individual investor and they will organize that sport and it will exist literally for the tell me, show me customer, uh, that is interested in, uh, watching speed, um, and it's gender neutral, and it can happen in you know essentially three seconds, and you can literally put it on your your Apple iWatch. you know. And that's, I mean, I have to admit, yeah.
0: you know, I, and I was seeing what what uh, how big IRG is, I had not really never heard of it. It's uh, definitely an interesting group, you know, running thousands of events around the world. I guess owning tracks, owning you know races, so. Yeah, I can imagine. That. Now I, I want to move on a little bit here to another really interesting one, um, and that's our buddies from MP Silva. Um, interesting enough, I've, I haven't had Andrea on it yet. Hopefully, he'll join us soon, eventually, and obviously hear his sides of the story here. Um, you know, but I, you, you kind of joined him. You know, what I would sort of say, sort of it, that later part of the story, right? Um, I think you joined him as a senior advisor to the board in 2015. Uh, obviously, the company then was sold. I think somewhere around 216, um, and then, as we all know, sooner or later, unfortunately, uh, it kind of folded. So it, it really was, uh, you know, I'd say a great agency, you know, collapse here. Uh, which is, you know, documented in many different ways around the world. Uh, depends on who you ask, as usual, right? And but you obviously were somewhat part of it, and, and I'm sure the usual certain things you may not be able to say out loud here. Uh, but I do love to just just spend a little bit of time on that. On uh, your perspective of it, right because um, you ran your own agency, even though it was very different than what probably MP Silva is doing right? which was mostly a rights trading agency right where you take potentially very large risk uh, and different probably than what you were taking in ski. Um, so it is a different business, a different model. Um, you know, it has huge risk, but it has also big upside when you get it right, right? Um, yeah, you know. I think so you're right. let's talk a bit about it, because again, sure, you know, I- an MP solver is is again reasonably. There are similarities to what my company is or is and was, uh, you know, with TSA. So I can identify with this space very well. Um, so tell us a bit about what you know, when you joined and what you were doing for them, uh, especially, I guess, a bit in the U.S. And then a little bit of what you saw, what happened with the Chinese uh, and after.
1: Well, I think it's a very interesting time. You pointed it out. I mean, fortunately, I was there specifically for North America and then was later asked to kind of opine as to, how they could unwind out of some of the issues they had post the sale. So um, at that time, they did not have a presence in North America. They had hired a, a very smart executive to open up the marketplace, and they needed some assistance. And, of course, for me, I'm pretty careful about where I sit on advisory boards or you know uh, boards in general. But I, I knew this particular executive and uh, had a great uh, relationship with, with he uh, for a long period of time and advising what they wanted to do in the US which were more naming rights type transactions you know securitize uh, leagues like the NFL NBA etc uh that's a pretty easy lift frankly so it's not it's not going to be a day to day role Um, so for opening up North America, it worked out quite well. I mean, we had great clients, great contracts, um, and their agency business and the media side, very different than the agency business and the activation or the ideation business, you know, MP and Silva for lack of a better word, buy high, sell higher, but that's just about every media company in the world. Right. And the better properties you buy, the easier they are to sell. And some of the properties do better than others. It's a sling and arrow business, right? One year, EHF handball is going to do exceedingly well. And Bundesliga is not going to do very well. When you look at the portfolio, and I don't think the story is ultimately been written, for me, it came at an interesting time because obviously sitting as a senior advisor at the board, you're trying to just give them in parts of wisdom uh, on where they could pick up big wins, and we had some big wins, and we missed on a few things, certainly, um, but the wins were out-trumping the, the losses, if you will. When Everbright came in and purchased the company, it was a very interesting time, because you are merely an advisor, you're watching it from afar. I've often said that you know I've had good relationships throughout Southeast Asia, particularly in China. Uh, at that time, President Xi wanted more Chinese involvement in sports in general. So MP and Silva happened effectively at the same time, Marcus, as Suning and other investments across the business of football, right? So watching that outside investor come in uh, certainly was there the day they made the announcement in Beijing. Uh, very proud moment for Andrea and Ricardo. And, and why shouldn't it be? They built a company and they built a great company and they've now uh, sold on to it. However, when you sell a company, I've experienced that too, and it's no longer yours. And you can't just say, I want to do this because I want to do it. Now you have to go through procedures. And from the outside perspective, as an American, there are very definite procedures of how you govern or your corporate governance. As a Chinese company, it's very different. And as a Chinese company, they were running it for themselves. But Marcus, to be fair, they
0: owned it. And if they wish to bought something over 50%, right? 56 or whatever uh, percentage I read somewhere and with a valuation, let's say of a billion dollars. So so they wrote a pretty large check, of course.
1: It was a healthy amount, I'll say. And, but the reality of it is at the end of the day, regardless of whether it's one, one, two, one, three billion, it's their company. And if they choose to wish to install new leadership or install uh, leadership that is closer to where they ultimately want to go, which was at the time they wanted to trade ultimately, I think on one of the uh, Chinese based indexes. Hey, it's your company do as you wish. The one comment I made multiple times was it's not as easy as you think this business is again, built on relationships and many of the men and women that they were, you know, exiting uh, exiting with with packages, you know, were not the kinds of people I would have replaced. I mean, frankly, uh, these agencies are always as good as the people running them, yep. and I think they 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 found themselves in a difficult spot where they thought the leadership at the company was interchangeable parts. Hmm. Now, that's a very unique thing in in the, in the world of Chinese ecosystem of sports investment, and. That was something that I know in talking with the leadership at MP and Silva, many people were very uh, hurt. I don't mean professionally hurt, but they were well taken care of. I'm thinking personally hurt, right? I can do more for you. I will help you. There were a lot of people there willing to help right at the highest levels, but there just was no interest on the other side from my lens, and I can only speak from my lens to accepting of that help, right? Mm-hmm. So, again, if, you know, and I always often say this look, if I buy your car, And then tell you how to drive it, you're going to say, I just, Uh, if I sell your car and tell you how to drive it, you're going to say, I I bought your car, man. It's my car, right? I get to do with it what I want when I want to do with it. I want to run it, you know, high octane gas all the time, never replace the tires and run it till the wheels come off. It's my car. In very much the same way. It's their car. They can do as they wish. Uh, We're merely here to make it, you know, advisory. Uh, North America was running very well. um, And certain parts were running exceptionally well. And I think that the leadership in in China attempted to make a move uh, when they mixed the leadership up uh, to try and get ahead of some of their concerns. But I also think, to be fair, that the Chinese government moved away from that strategy. And like we've seen with these other investments where they can can unilaterally say, we're going to make a move against esports and shut down the amount of time esports is played, or we're going to make a move on outside investment and shut down a certain investment. Look, they can think and act as they wish that's their company and that's exactly what happened there they thought and they acted in the manner that they wished and it had very little to do with the previous leadership and most of the major leaders include including myself as an advisor simply had no voice but uh, frustrating very definitely something to put in the books um, and interesting from afar to to witness it um, but very much their own doing So, you know, when the story, I guess, gets fully written, if ever asked, um, and every once in a while, someone will say, what's it like advising Chinese companies? Um, I've done advisory work for the Chinese Super League. I found every one of the owners who came to those meetings to be honorable, to want the very best for their fan base, to want the very best to grow their own companies. Um, And uh, that's generally the feel. In the case of MP and Silva, I've often said that a group got what they wanted and had a very definite concept but the concept wasn't well thought out and it wasn't capitalized in a manner that would have allowed them to achieve those results now you've got the worst of all things you've got this very big company requiring of obligations and you don't have the leadership in the building any longer that they used to have and you've made it quite clear that that leadership is not welcomed professionally and suddenly now you're left to run the company on a handful of people and it fell under its own weight hmm. i mean that's a- you know,
0: really simple. Uh, it, it's not Microsoft. Just Yeah, and as you said, as we all know, the agency business is about the people who have those relationships, and all of a sudden they disappear, contracts disappear, right? So no longer they retain the rights to Syria um, or other things they maybe were going after. You know, they brought in Sheamus, I guess, uh, to try to go after the AFC rights, which of course he was the. The master of it for decades with his own agency. Um, And then, you know, of course, Lagadere bought him, uh, you know, brought him in to maybe, you know, get a crack at that. They didn't win that either. Um, So, you know, these things aren't as simple as it looks like. Uh, And clearly, uh, in the process of it, without knowing all the details, uh, it looks like they made a ton of mistakes. And who is to blame? Uh, yeah, that's uh, you know it depends on which side you're on, right, and how you look at it. Because I guess they even tried to sue, you know, uh, maybe certain groups there. So uh, I don't know whether it, the whole thing is the story is already over, uh, but uh, it, it, it definitely yeah, it's I, one of those messy ones in our industry, which uh, I'm sure uh, more, more stories will be written over on you know on about.
1: The, the best part for being an advisor is you get to witness it, good or bad. Um, and you provide your advice without malice, Uh, and I gave advice to both sides, and we'll see how both sides treat themselves. I think uh, you're right. I don't know if the story is written there. Um, I still maintain very good relationships on both sides of that, Um, and, you know, we'll see. But, um, you know, for what the Chinese sports consumer or marketplace has changed, that landscape is very different in 2021 than it was in 2014.
0: that's for sure. Now let's let's sort of uh, slowly find our way to the finish line here, uh, to the checkered flag in your world. Um, we, you know, and let's talk about the winning streak Sports Company, which is a Grinheid Bridge Partners company. Uh, tell me, what are, what are you doing there, um, and and what's your role, and what's what is the company all about? Well,
1: Granite Bridge Partners is formerly WAFRA, which is the sovereign fund of Kuwait. In the United States, they spun out to, be, to become Granite Bridge Partners. Along the same time I joined IRGSC as their co-chair, I was just retained to be an independent director of Granite Bridge Partners sports strategy, which was winning streak sports at the time. It's now expanded into some other brands. Um, it's a very different company. It's more licensing, uh, social media uh, ultimately social commerce, things that are all kind of converging through Discord and other ways, mm-hmm. particularly uh, in a world that's 24 seven connected. It is the largest, or I should say, uh, easiest way to explain it, the number one premium licensed company in the world. And I was the independent director uh, for a couple of years as they were looking at investments, what to make investments in. Mm-hmm. And somewhere in late 2018 or early 2019, probably early 2019, Um, It was clear that there were some investments that were moving along really well and some that weren't. And several of the members of the board had asked if I'd step off the board, which I'm still on, but if I would step off the board and go to more of a day-to-day role to get them through some of the hurdles that they were facing. Um, And look, I work with friends and it's always an honor when they say, hey, can you do this? And I said, look, I can certainly do it. I'm I'm not going to move uh, my family, um, but I, I know these leagues. I've known them a long time. Um, we can address these questions that are coming up. They weren't quite ready for digital, frankly, Marcus, and that was becoming ever clear uh, almost daily that we weren't just adapting fast enough. And in 2019, having scale, we literally purchased all these products around the world. Look, we have Liverpool, Manchester United, and, and the Mexican national football team, and uh, different leagues around the world, as well as NFL, MLB, NHL—you name it. If it happens, it happens. The licensing and the social commerce side, the e-commerce side is merging very definitely here. Lots of moving parts here, particularly with a client in in Fanatics and a relationship we enjoy that I had deeper relationships before. I even joined Granite Bridge. So Fanatics is a
0: client. So you guys produce the product and they sell it or how does it work?
1: We do both. We actually make products for them directly and then they will effectively utilize our products like last night. Several of our products are – You know, effectively licensed. We're the only manufacturer of something. For example, the Dynasty product, which if you don't know globally, is the very things that they hang up in the banners or arenas after someone wins a world championship or a Champions League event, right? Mm -hmm. Hugely popular in the collectible space. And collectibles are growing dramatically in the US, right? Winning Streak makes a premium product. It's not inexpensive. It has a higher price point. It's not sold oftentimes in the venue. It's custom stuff, you know, high stitch counts, And we're moving into more uh, social commerce, Instagram-based, TikTok-based, digital media sales, um, which is very akin to what's going on in the APAC, particularly in China, where effectively I call it a streaming nation, where it's just streamers selling.
0: Wow, so they need that the the, you know the live streaming or you know what they call it which where you're selling product while you're streaming you're, you're streaming uh is crazily large there, right I mean it's a multi multi-billion dollar industry it hasn't really I haven't really seen it anywhere as big as, as what's happening in China or anywhere outside of the world yet for some reason uh, but it will pick up so uh, yeah that's a great space uh, so so you guys doing some of that already as well where you stream? Well, we are absolutely okay. Um
1: and we have, and we, we've done some testing trials with, with our clients and fanatics. We've done a, a real big test and trial with Texas A&M University mm-hmm. two years ago. Now, COVID has affected, obviously, everything we do in the world is a lot larger than sports. It has had the first, I considered, material impact in sports, where generally why we're not certainly recession-proof, generally we bounce back faster. But because of the unique scale of this particular event, when we came out of our strategy, like most private equity, because that's what I've been doing for the last you know, eight years or so, private equity-based investments. Um, And this is a private equity-based company. At some point, we acquired another company recently called Princeton Replay, which is solely digital. It literally doesn't exist with a hard brick-and-mortar concept anywhere in the world. It's headless. It can sell around the world 24-7, and it never shuts itself off. And when things happen, like last night uh, with the Atlanta Braves winning the World Series, the neat thing with licensing, the neat thing with social commerce and licensing together – is within a matter of minutes our products were being moved digitally Mm -hmm. for a customer anywhere in the world because the Braves had won now, if you have the right portfolio and you have got the right scale you're going to win the World Series, you're going to win the Formula One World Championship, you're going to win the Champions League you're going to win the EPL, you're going to win the NFL Super Bowl, you're going to win the College Football Championship and you're going to win the Men's Women's National Basketball Championship for North American listeners and that's it there's your model, you win every single sport (laughs) Very few businesses offer that, right? right? So for for us, that's a model. Now, we also have a premium product. And so it's a little bit different than, say, the traditional customer just says, hey, look, I'm just looking to sell something or move something a certain way. So we speak to a, a very definite audience that is looking for a higher level of product quality. And then in a lot of cases, since it's corporate – we're involved in making sure that our various leagues are supported in different ways on on their initiatives, uh, particularly whether it's sponsors or for social media. So, you know, the story's not yet unwritten because we have one or two more acquisitions that we'd like to try and do, um, and we are out trying to hire, uh, you know, very smart men and women right now. But at some point, Marcus, uh, like a lot of these things coming off the board, was a decision to help. Uh, I will go back on the board here very soon. Uh, And we will put one of our our executives, install uh, one executive particularly into the CEO role. And I will go back being what I was before, which is the independent director, allowing and assisting on uh, the acquisition side uh, and advising Granite on how they want to approach uh, their investments in sports. Mm
0: -hmm. Interesting. Well, what sort of scale does the business has right now? I mean, just give me any numbers which are public or anything you can share just to give us scale and size of this.
1: Uh I think when we say we're the number one premium licensed product in sports that should give you the scale.
0: Yeah I mean I would look I'm looking for a number <laughs> in terms of maybe revenue or but if it's not public okay no worries. Um we'll leave it at that. Um So we don't have to file for that. That's one
1: advantage of not being in a public company. Uh, Okay, fair enough.
0: Interesting. Now, look, uh, yeah, I have to – again, I haven't really heard as much about it, but uh, I will definitely do some more homework um, on exactly what you guys are doing there and and what it is you're doing in this part of the world as well. Uh, Now, as we're closing in here now, we've got almost a good hour and a half of – of uh, your very uh, colorful and, and, and you know, interesting career here. Uh, I know you also do a few other things, right? I think you are an adjunct professor at Columbia University, I guess, where you teach. Um, and, of course, you are sitting on a few other boards and, and other representations. So definitely keeps you busy. There's no doubt about it, um, you know, in, including uh, all the stuff you were just sharing, what you're still doing right now. You're so, uh thanks for your time. It's been it's been a lot of fun. But uh, yeah, any last thoughts here? Marcus, you know, it,
1: like I said, I've been able to been, be fortunate to talk to friends and, and colleagues for 20 years, as if I just talked to them a week ago. When you and I first met, it was because you were growing TSA rapidly, and it was having success after success after success. And I wanted to, as I say, pony up to what what is this guy Marcus doing? But we were also getting our accolades for the men and women at Skiing Company. And clearly, our world's met, I think, you know, in our advanced movement for Singapore. But here we are many, many years later having the same dialogue box about just being successful. Look, success is not easy. It's never linear. And it's not a ladder. Um, I've done the adjunct professorship at Columbia now seven years. And I tell and I only teach the graduate students or the graduate candidates that in the sports business, it's not like a ladder. Think of it more like a spray paint can. And you're going to spray over transferable skills. And you're going to juggle those balls again. The glass balls are people. Um, I have the good fortune, as I know do you, to pick up the phone and call people as if I was talking to them yesterday and having not talked to them for 10 years. Anybody could be in the sports and entertainment business as a young executive. It requires energy and grit and perseverance and a willingness to trudge through the early days. When you're our age, and we're not that old, okay, let's be clear. Um, and it's still a very young industry and pivoting to esports. Um, I sit on an esports board that I'm very proud of to be on their board. I'm very proud of the relationship we did with that board with Disney. I'm very proud of the relationship we do with the colleges there. I'm very proud of the men and women that have been installed there. I'm really proud of the work that we do at Granite Bridge Partners and Winning Street Sports and Princeton Replays. I'm proud of what we do at My Take India. I'm proud because these are friends that I've known my whole life who say, Can you address a question? And we're going to go solve it. And for me, uh, these kinds of opportunities to do podcasts, you learn something every day. Now, in the sports business, I've always said you're getting bigger or smaller every day. There is no middle ground. It's really very simple. And if you do enough of the math and enough of the hard work, it will work out. But you have to be confident. You have to stick to your guns because you will be challenged. And there's more than a few challenges that I know you have accepted. And you come through the other end. I know I have as well. Um, and you learn a whole lot about yourself. It's easy to be in the sports business when everything is going really, really well. It's much more difficult when it's not. And so you learn more about yourself with those challenges than you do when, hey, you're winning races, you're winning championships. Um, and so I've enjoyed the entire journey, the good and the bad of it. But it's about the people. And I've always focused that if we service that end or the client's needs of what they're trying to accomplish, this business is very simple, uh, like most good businesses. So, you know, I look forward for the next 10, 15 years of of my career um, and deciding where I get to play. Because the advantage that you and I both have after doing this for so long is that people call us saying, what do you think? That is the privilege of working the last 20 years very hard for your customers. And putting them first in a lot of cases before anything else, making sure that their success was very much measured ultimately in your success. So my lens has always been if I'm that way now, I should be that way later. And that consistency has been, um, I think, a cornerstone to anything we've ever accomplished as a company. Because a lot of the very same men and women around me have been around me for 20 plus years. So um, I'm probably most proud of that. It's been a pleasure to reconnect. I've enjoyed it. And if anybody wants to ever reach out, by all means, you know certainly you know how to track me down.
0: Yeah, absolutely, we definitely can find you on LinkedIn and many other ways, and where you know I'm connected to you. And uh, yeah, look, I I think uh, I love your way. Uh, the, the summary he just now, uh, and I would completely agree. The business we're in is is a people business, um, as it is in most businesses, right? Um, but clearly, the world of sports is really all about these relationships uh, which you've built, I've built, and many of our colleagues and friends here who've been on the podcast have built, and uh, and that is the you know the community we we tapping into, and as I said, and it keeps expanding, right? Gaming and esports is is becoming a big thing, and but again, there are similar men and women there who show up uh, at these places again, so. Uh, it's, it's fun and the story continues and I'm sure we'll have another session in many years from now again uh, and review what we've done to, you know at that time. So, uh, Chris, you have a great day. Absolutely. Be yeah, well, Marcus. Definitely. We'll talk soon again. Bye-bye. Thanks. Bye-bye. The Sports Entrepreneurs by Marcus Lure Podcasts